If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The only thing that makes this world that we're in now different from the world of 100 years ago or even 500 years ago is that the networks are bigger and faster, but they always existed. And the behavior of networks over time uh, is, I think, qualitatively familiar. That was Neil Ferguson talking to us about networks through history. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear from Neil Ferguson, who is one of Britain's best-known historians as well as being a highly successful author and broadcaster. Among his previous books are Empire, Colossus, The Pity of War and The Ascent of Money. And now for his latest work, The Square and the Tower, he is exploring the vital but often neglected role of networks in history. Neil is based nowadays at Harvard University, but he paid a visit to the UK a few weeks back and we sent our content director, Dave Marsgrove, to London to meet him. So, Neil, thank you for uh, joining us. The title of your book is The Square and the Tower, The Rise, Fall and Rise of Networks. So, what are the networks you're talking about? Can you give us a little introduction to them? Well, networks are all around. They weren't invented by Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. And yet, in history, they're conspicuous by their absence. And I think that's because historians like to write about nice hierarchical institutions, not least because those institutions have archives. And networks tend not to, especially very informal ones. So part of the point of the book is to put networks back into history, point out to Silicon Valley that they didn't invent them, and show that from, oh, that the networks that created the Reformation or that explored the new world all the way to the modern social networks, a lot of what we think of as historical change can be explained in terms of network effects. Most historians have not read much about network science, if anything. There are a few people who work in this, but it's still quite a, a niche field, social network analysis. 
So part of the point of the square and the tower is to bring some pretty cool research that is still in a kind of academic silo into the mainstream and show that whatever you're writing about, whether it's the Reformation or the Enlightenment, uh, or for that matter, the Cold War, you need to make some allowance for the fact that networks were almost certainly playing a part. Okay. And um, in uh, the opening chapters of your book, you mentioned that um, perhaps sort of an early iteration of this was uh, prosopography. Yeah. Difficult word to say. And you sort of you intimated that perhaps you wished you'd taken more interest in that uh, back in the day. Um, is that is that the sort of the forerunner of this study, that, that, that idea of looking at groups of individuals? Uh... Yes, I think in, in historiography, certainly prosopography was a, a forerunner. Lewis Namia's... Uh, famous book on the structure of politics uh, at the beginning of George III's reign is a good example. And I think there has been a long and rather distinguished tradition in British historiography of thinking not just in terms of, of individuals and their bureaucracies or armies, but also in uh, more detail at uh, social groups uh, this is a particularly important way of thinking about the 18th century, but it also works quite well if you're trying to explain something like the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. What's been lacking has been any rigour in the way that we have thought about networks. I was guilty of this in my early work. I realised as I was working on a biography of Henry Kissinger that I was somebody who'd spent a lot of time writing about networks financial networks, for example, and then networks of power in the 1970s without really formalising the argument. I think a lot of us think about networks rather casually. We know that we're in networks. You have a network of friends, so do I. There's a network of people who work on history. So we're all conscious of networks and we have a rough understanding of what they are. They're different from the, the formal command structure that exists at the BBC, that you report to someone and people report to you. That's the hierarchical structure. But the networks that you're in, whether it's a, a professional network or purely a network of friends, are just as important and maybe more important. The trouble is most people don't really understand how networks work. And they almost certainly have a wrong understanding if they have any at all. And the contrast I try to make in the book is between what I'll call the, uh, the Zuckerberg view, Mark Zuckerberg's rather idealistic view, that if you connect the whole world, if everybody is in one giant social network, it'll be great. Everything will be awesome and we'll all exchange ideas and, and a kind of democracy of netizens will prevail, what he's called a global community. And I'm trying to show in this book that that ain't the way it works uh, for a variety of very interesting and somewhat counterintuitive reasons. Uh, networks, to give just one example, don't uh, create a wonderful level playing field in which everybody is equally connected to everybody else. In practice, networks are highly unequal. Some people are way more connected than others. And some people are not connected at all, the network isolates. So number one insight is that there's a profound inequality embedded in a networked world. And another good example of why the world is not going to necessarily get better the more networked it is, 
is the phenomenon of, of homophily, the fact that people are gravitate towards people like them, like themselves. Birds of a feather flock together. We were all taught that at school. It's true. And network science shows that if you have a population which is, say, ethnically heterogeneous in a large school, there's lots of evidence of this from the United States, they will self-segregate uh, according to race or ethnicity. And so this phenomenon is another reason why the more networked a society gets, the more divided it can paradoxically become. I'm fascinated by that kind of thing. And I'm acutely aware that in my earlier work and in the work of many other historians I've read, those insights are absent. And that, that concept of uh, homophily is, uh, is, is, is a word that I hadn't come across before, but um, just thinking back to the Brexit debate, that was definitely something that was on Facebook and social media, wasn't it? People thought that results were going to go one way because they were seeing on social media that, you know, everyone in their social group was saying one thing. Um, and I think that was probably a good example of, of the sort of thing you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had a very similar phenomenon last year in the United States where the uh, election that produced Donald Trump was characterised by two parallel narratives of the election. If you were a liberal on the coasts, you couldn't imagine Donald Trump becoming president because your Facebook feed was telling you that he was a, a moron. Um, but if you were in Trump land, if you were in the heartland, uh, your Facebook feed was telling you that Hillary was crooked. So part of what Facebook has done, I think, has been to magnify a pre-existing human condition, but not to invent it. The only thing that makes this world that we're in now different from the world of 100 years ago or even 500 years ago is that the networks are bigger and faster, but they always existed. And the behavior of networks over time uh, is, I think, qualitatively familiar. A good example of this is we saw a lot of things go viral last year. When we, when we say go viral, we're talking about the speed with which an idea or meme, if you like, spreads through a network. I think most people assume that if an idea goes viral, it's because it's a really cool idea. It's inherently attractive idea, but that's not quite right. It matters a lot, the structure of the network that the idea enters. And you can have a fantastic idea that doesn't go viral because the network is simply not configured for contagion or you enter it at the wrong point. So I'm fascinated by the the phenomenon of, of virality, of contagion, as something that reflects network structure more than the inherent contagiousness of any given idea. When you're trying to explain religious upheaval, and I talk at some length in the book about the Protestant Reformation, you have to remember that Luther wasn't saying incredibly novel things. Plenty of people had been critical of the Roman Catholic uh, hierarchy before, but he was saying them at a time when the printing press made it much easier for an idea to go viral than had been the case 100 years before. And so the reason Luther's not just another heretic who ends up burnt at the stake, but actually he becomes a successful religious revolutionary, has a lot to do with the structure of, of the social networks of, of Germany and indeed Europe in the 1520s. That's the kind of thing that I'm excited by. And the same story keeps repeating itself pretty much from the Reformation through 
to the American Revolution, it's networks that cause certain ideas to go viral. And you can't understand why some ideas succeed until you understand the networks that they're entering. We'll jump into that research in, in, uh, after one more quick question, because I think the listeners of the podcast will be interested in the, in the, uh, in the historical background to this. But so... Ten years or so ago in BBC History Magazine, we had a, a silly and uh, an ill-loved feature called the Six Degrees of Francis Bacon, where we tried to get people to uh, link historical figures to, to the Elizabethan courtier. And I just Googled uh, now to see whether there was any uh, re- recollection of that, and there wasn't, but there is a research project... Um, a proper historical research project looking at the network connections of Sir Francis Bacon with a nodal map like the sort of thing you're showing about. So someone's doing that research. And then I notice also that there is a a new journal of um, uh, historical network research launching. Um, And there's all the the synthesised works that you're relying on. So there are clearly lots of people now looking at this. Is this the next sort of historical discipline? And will people be doing degrees in network history in five years' time, like they might have been doing economic history degrees? I think it's possible, although there's a danger, and you see it in some of the research that's being produced. And the danger is that you get your data and you feed it into the software and you get a pretty picture. Or sometimes you get a hairball, a hideous picture, but you get a picture and you discover that um, Francis Bacon is connected to everybody. Yep. Um, and you say, gosh, that's amazing, and that's it. But in my view, that's not a sufficient contribution to count as, as valuable history. There needs to be more than just, gosh, everybody is connected. We, we know from the work of sociologists and Stanley Milgram that uh, we're all pretty interconnected. The six degrees of separation idea works because in most, certainly mo- most modern societies, you, you can get from person A uh, to person Z uh, via six steps or with five intermediaries uh, pretty much wherever you start. So it's not surprising to find that that's true too in uh, even the early modern period. The, the big issue is, so what? Uh, and, and a lot of, of poor history questions can elicit the, the crushing response, so what? There needs to be some further development. In other words, you have to show that the network structure that you've graphed has some explanatory value. It tells you, for example, uh, to take one nice case, that Paul Revere was in many ways the most important of the American revolutionaries because he was the most or one of the most interconnected of the the Bostonian patriots who made the revolution. When you graph the the network of, of revolutionaries in 1776, you learn something about who really mattered. And that's, I think, important. It's not necessarily the people that we think of as important who were important. Paul Revere didn't write that much. In fact, he was better known for his engravings. But he mattered a lot in the revolution because he was tremendously connected. He had very high betweenness centrality, to use one of the technical terms for network science. And that explains why when he went on his ride to tell people that the the Redcoats were coming, they believed him because he was somebody that they knew and trusted. 
So I think network-based research is proliferating for good reasons. It's without question illuminating, but we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking we're done when we print out that, that fancy graph. It needs to have some explanatory value because just pointing out that people are connected is not that interesting. Okay. And that you can see lots of those fancy graphs in, in the book. So if anyone's not familiar with them, then, then we can... Well, I, see I, I think the benefit of the graphs uh, lies in the fact that you are able to formalise an intuition often or confound it. I'll give you a good example. The reason I wrote this book was that I'm halfway through a biography of Henry Kissinger. And halfway through it, I suddenly asked myself the question... Was he so influential and powerful in the 1970s because he was a consummate networker? And it seems, at least at first glance, like a plausible hypothesis. The great benefit of what I'm doing now is that I can show that. I can show that of all the people in the Nixon administration, he was the most connected. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing that I find illuminating. You're, you're trying to give some precision to statements about importance and about connectedness, about influence and about power. Put it differently, we all have an org chart, or at least most organizations have an org chart. And those org charts say who's at the top, who is the chief executive, and who are the grunts. And it's like a pyramid in most cases. Those org charts are important, but they're not necessarily an accurate description of power in any organization. And so one almost has to think of every institution as having both an org chart and a network graph. And the network graph is the hidden mechanics of an organization, the social network within it. And I do think that's a really powerful and illuminating tool. You start to see who sees whom, who talks to whom, who writes to whom, that kind of thing. And you can start being rigorous about statements that in most history are vague. I mean, historians are often guilty, I think, of, of sleight of hand. I used to do this. I would talk about influence. I would talk about social circles. When I was trying to explain how the Rothschild Bank worked, writing in the 1990s, I would talk about a network of agents and correspondents and, and affiliated banks. But I never really followed through and, and explained to the reader how that worked and who the most important agents were. We can do that. One of the interesting contentions in your book is that historians are slightly missing a trick by not looking at these networks or at least not researching the records that survive for them because they are leaving open societies, secret societies particularly, um, to conspiracy theorists and, and cranks, for want of a better word, because historians uh, and serious academics haven't been able to interrogate those, those subjects properly. I think that's exactly what's happened. Um, there are lots of dreadful books that will tell you that the Illuminati control the world or that the Rothschilds control the Illuminati or that George Soros controls the Rothschilds. They all control the Federal Reserve. And those sorts of books sell in rather alarming numbers and the websites that, that make the same arguments are popular. We as professional historians have shied away from addressing the question of who the Illuminati were and how powerful the Rothschilds were, or for that matter, 
another good example, the Freemasons, because all these not very respectable people are interested in the Illuminati and the Freemasons and the Rothschilds. But that's a dereliction of duty. We actually need to recognize that the networks were important. And just because conspiracy theorists exaggerate their importance doesn't mean they had no importance. A good example is the uh, Milner Roundtable, Lord Milner's Roundtable, which um, for many years uh, was represented as an all-powerful force in British politics uh, in the mid-20th century. Well, it wasn't all-powerful, and I think I show that. But it wasn't non-existent either. It, it did matter and it did play a part. The apostles were enormously important in the intellectual life of Cambridge in the 19th and the 20th century. It's nevertheless true that they were successfully penetrated by the KGB, another very important network. All of this stuff is historically important and we shouldn't leave it to cranks and conspiracy theorists. In fact, we should take it away from them and, and show how much power networks had and also the limits of their power. This is a really important point about the book. What I try to show is that there are periods when networks are very powerful and very disruptive of established hierarchies. And then there are periods when the hierarchies get their act together and reimpose their authority. Networks were very weak, uh, particularly, I think, in the mid-20th century, the time of totalitarian states. And so one can, with a book like this, calibrate the issue. Yes, there have been times when the Freemasons wielded considerable power in the intellectual life uh, of Europe and North America, but they didn't cause the French Revolution or, for that matter, the American Revolution. They were there, but you can't attribute everything to their secret influence. Now, there are a couple of words that I think we, we can't just leave hanging, the Illuminati and the Apostles. Um, would you be able to just quickly summarise who, who the Illuminati were and, and the, the real history behind them? Because it's a, it's a fascinating story. Well, the, the, the mad conspiracy theory is that the Illuminati are a secret society that still exists to this day and controls via a number of different front organisations the world. And you can go online, Google Illuminati, and get to the websites that make that claim. In fact, the Illuminati were a secret society established in, of all places, Bavaria uh, in the 1770s. And the aim of the Illuminati originally was to advance the cause of enlightenment in a part of Germany that was quite unfriendly to the enlightenment because of the power of the Roman Catholic Church and particularly the Jesuits. The man who created the Illuminati was a man named Adam Weishaupt, and he had a very elaborate scheme whereby the secret society was going to create a kind of version of the Jesuits for the Enlightenment. And uh, ultimately, the society fell foul of the Bavarian authorities. It never got very big, ultimately uh, ended up with uh, probably fewer than 2,000 members. But what happened was that its enemies then turned the society into a kind of uh, bête noire, blaming it for the French Revolution by the 1790s. And this became something of a, of a tradition on both 
sides of the Atlantic to, to claim that the Illuminati still existed, even though the order had been dissolved in the 1780s and, and was exerting a secret uh, power over uh, world events. Conspiracy theories are very popular. As I point out in the introduction to the book, a lot of people, a really surprising number of people, believe the, the hidden hand theory that says, well, what we see on the news is not the real news. In fact, the Illuminati were responsible for, you name it. But what's fascinating is to find that the Illuminati did exist and that the ambitions of their founder were very grandiose. So I'm, I'm excited by the fact that there is now a real history of the Illuminati, and I give due credit to the scholars in Germany who've uncovered this. It's tremendously difficult work because it's not as if there's an Illuminati archive you can go to. Actually, the archive of the Illuminati ended up being distributed around the place after the society was broken up. And the best clues to what was going on turned out to be in the archives of Masonic lodges. So you go from the Illuminati into the world of Freemasonry, and that too is a fascinating story in its own right. Again, we're at a point in historiography when we can write about these things without fantasizing about them. There are enough sources to go on. And I think the same is true in the case of the Apostles, about which a good deal of conspiracy theory has been, been written. But we now know that this extraordinary intellectually elite society within Cambridge University played a tremendously important role in English intellectual life. John Maynard Keynes was a member, Lytton Strachey was a member. In some ways, the roots of the Bloomsbury Group were in the Cambridge Apostles. But there's this shadow side to the story, which is the way in which in the 1930s, the KGB successfully recruited three of the Cambridge spies from, from this elite network, which had become so contemptuous of established Victorian values. The apostles certainly came to despise those. But by the 1930s, members were prepared to embrace uh, the Soviet Union and, and Marxism to the point of betraying their own country. Again, good research by historians like Christopher Andrew has allowed us to show what it was that was going on and how it was that people like Guy Burgess and Anthony Blunt were recruited. But when I look back on some of the stuff that was written on this subject 30 or 40 years ago, once again, you encounter the problem that sensationalist writers are drawn to the subject matter. The notion of treason by the elite is tremendously exciting. Uh, but it generates a lot of, well, frankly, bad history and often wildly exaggerated history. So by studying networks, you can get an insight into these fascinating groups. But um, on top of that, you've, you've sort of come up with a, a, a new chronological system in a way. You've got these two ages of, of mm. networking that you've come up with. So the first one you mentioned starts with printing in the late 15th century and goes on till the end of the 18th century. And then we have a little uh, a high, uh, sort of um, hierarchical hiatus. And then in the 1970s, we have the second age of networks. So is that, have I correctly yes. summarised the situation? That's right. It's a kind of new narrative arc um, in the sense that we're trying to explain some of the, the most important events in modern history by using this, this tool of analysis thinking about the Reformation, the Scientific Revolution, the Enlightenment, the American Revolution, and the French Revolution, even in the, the Industrial Revolution, all of them as consequences of a fundamental shift, not just in technology, because I don't want to be a technological determinist, 
but but also in in the structure of social networks themselves, the combination of the, the printing press and changes in European society in the late 1400s and 1500s contributed to a situation in which things could go viral as they had not really for many centuries. And that that network disruption that begins with Martin Luther is tremendously long-lasting. It's as if Western society is hit by a succession of, of waves, but each time it's a network that's the, the driving force. It's through networks that radical ideas about politics cross the Atlantic, and we can trace those networks. We can see who, say, Benjamin Franklin, was reading radical ideas that crossed the Atlantic from France and thinking, what does this imply for the American colonies? The fascinating story for me is the the kind of high tide of that period, the, the moment when the networks overreach by plunging Europe into chaos, and that's really the 1790s. The French Revolution has a very different outcome from the American Revolution, and the, the networks uh, that brought the Ancien Regime down, in some ways, fail to create any new order. You end up with a kind of anarchy. And the only way that you can deal with the problem of, of anarchy that has been created by the late 1790s is to create a very hierarchical new order, which is what Napoleon does. And the there's a turning point there with, with Napoleon's advent as first consul and then, then emperor. I would argue that from there, from around 1800, uh, right the way through until the 1970s, hierarchical structures of organization gain the upper hand. And they gain the upper hand partly because of technology. The new technologies that come along in the 19th century, uh, railways, telegraphs uh, in particular, but also steam power more generally, give rise to very centralized uh, communication systems uh, with London as the sort of super hub at the center of of the world. And the culmination of this process of of centralization of communications is the era of of Stalin and Hitler and Mao when individual dictators could wield total power over the societies they governed, rendering unofficial networking effectively illegal on pain of death. And that's that's the essence to the dichotomy that I begin with. Networks and hierarchies aren't really antonyms. A hierarchy is a special kind of network in which there is one single hub that monopolizes communication and very few edges, very few links between the other nodes in the network. That's what a hierarchy really is. It's a special kind of network in which one particular node monopolizes information and resources. Stalin was in that sense the ultimate hierarch. What's exciting is the realization that it doesn't take a huge amount of additional links, additional edges between nodes to make a hierarchy fall apart. And from the 1970s onwards, partly because of changing technology, but I think also for other reasons, the great hierarchical states of the mid 20th century began to fall apart with the Soviet Union as the most spectacular case of collapse. So the narrative which I'm 
offering, which I think is quite an original one, shows that there are network ages, one of which I think is sort of the 1520s, maybe a little earlier. The other is gets going in the 1970s. But in the intervening period, in the 19th and 20th century, you have this age of hierarchy, which culminates in Stalin's terrifying dictatorship, a, a dictatorship that's so controlling that even two people can't meet, as Isaiah Berlin does with the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova. They can't meet and have a conversation about literature without Stalin knowing about it and punishing her for it. Uh, now, we are very accustomed to free association in a free society like the United Kingdom. It's important that the book reminds readers that if you lived in the Soviet Union in the 1940s and 50s, you could not network with impunity. In fact, networking could get you killed. Even being accused of an informal association that wasn't official could get you sent to the gulag. We've come a long way since then. I don't think anybody could re-establish that kind of totalitarian regime in our relatively networked age. Yeah, that's a remarkable story you tell in the book of, uh, of Isaiah Berlin. Um, but would it be fair to say that, despite what you're saying about the, um, the inability for totalitarian states to form, that you're not extremely confident about where we're going now in this second network age. I mean, you cite Yuval Noah Harari's view that we're all going to come to a, a, a grisly end soon with the uh, rise of the networks based on computer algorithms. Is that a, a sort of a view you share that humanity is about to become obsolete and extinct? Well, I'm a historian and I, I'm not equipped with a crystal ball the way he is. Uh, I... Uh, I simply point out that the experience of the first networked age, uh, that which began in the 1520s, was that the more networked societies became, the more prone they were to religious conflict, to take just one example. That a networked world is not necessarily a stable world, because to go back to something we talked about a moment ago, the nature of networks does not, it seems to me, lend itself to stability. They're inherently inclined to promote uh, a polarization of views. That's the homophily problem. I'll, I'll listen to the people I agree with and screen out the people I don't agree with because of that tendency for networks to be very unequal. So the rich get richer, superstar economics prevails in a network world. And it's no coincidence that some of the richest people in the world today are the people who own the networks, the, the Zuckerbergs and their, and their ilk. The tendency for networks to allow good and bad ideas to go viral, that's a really important point. It isn't just cute cat pictures that go viral, it's videos of beheadings. And I think rather than go all the way down the uh, artificial intelligence is going to take over the world and human beings are going to be rendered uh, redundant, if not extinct, I prefer to stick to history and say, we can see from past experience that the more networked the world gets, the less stable it gets. And we should expect inequality to intensify. We should expect there to be uh, ideological and religious uh, conflicts. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised if crazy ideas uh, go viral. That's really the way I'm trying to think about it. We shouldn't be surprised that uh, networks attack networks. And I think you don't need to be a, a prophet 
to see that the age of cyber war is already here. And we, we saw a cyber war, in a sense, played out in the American election last year. That's, that's the way I prefer to think about it. I'm really arguing against a utopian view, which I think many people in Silicon Valley promote, that if we're all interconnected, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn, um, everything will be awesome. That, that's, I think, a great delusion, though. I can see why people in Silicon Valley might make that argument. Finally, one more question. Is there one historical unofficial network that you think would really reward further study if there are archives that appear that, that, that allows you to open up that particular group? That's a great question. One way of answering it is for me to think about the networks I didn't really have the bandwidth to cover. I'm not an ancient historian, so I couldn't devote nearly enough attention to the networks of the ancient world. But when you think about the two great uh, viral ideas of the ancient world, uh, Christianity and Islam, we need a lot more work on those. We especially need, I think, more critical historical work on, on Islam. Why did uh, Muhammad's ideas go viral? It certainly wasn't technology because they happened and spread in a place that had the most limited technology of communications. It wasn't a literate society. And we still don't have good historical accounts of why that happened. And I think that that's where I would love to see more research. I looked for it. It doesn't exist. Partly, I think, because people are deterred from working um, on the history of the Prophet Muhammad and early Islam by the uh, widely held view that it's blasphemous to treat it as, as regular history. We used to think that about Christianity. It used to be regarded as uh, tremendously uh, dangerous to ask historical questions about the life of Jesus Christ. And we, we overcame that and, and we were able to do that kind of scholarship, much of it in the 19th century. That still hasn't happened with Islam and I think this would be a good time for that work to be done. Many thanks. Thank you. That was Neil Ferguson talking to Dave Musgrove. The square and the tower, networks, hierarchies and the struggle for global power is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, it's going to be published in January by Penguin. And you can read a written version of this interview in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, with Richard III on the cover. OK, well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be talking to Mariko Oi about the kamikaze pilots of World War II. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.